Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. We have a favor to ask. Our partner is conducting a survey and would be grateful for your help in answering a few questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes of your time and your participation helps support our advertisers. Please go to slatestudy.com to complete the short survey now. This podcast may have explicit content. It also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Techno boy king Mark Zuckerberg engaged in a Q&A session with employees, the audio of which was leaked, which I'm sure Zuckerberg's fine with, thinks about the importance of knowing what everyone else is thinking. We believe that connectivity is a human right. Right. So in one question, Zuckerberg was asked about the potential breakup of Facebook by the government. Let me play some of what he said. Like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks that the right answer is to break up the companies. Um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge, and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. All right. That part is uh, true as far as it goes, I suppose. It's at least an insight into the Zuckerberg brain. I will, as uncomfortable as it may be, now play the next part in its entirety. So it's so it's um, so basically it's uh, it, and um, so. I, I, All right, not inspirational, but eventually he gets there, and here's the there. Does that still suck for us? Yeah, I mean, I don't have to, you know, have a major lawsuit against our own government. I mean, that's not like the position that you want to be in when you're. You know, I mean, it's like we we care about our country and like want to work with our government to do good things. And um, but but look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the mat and you fight. All right. I got to say, this seems relatable, understandable. In fact, many companies are investigated. They're regulated by the government. And if I work for one of those companies, I'd want the CEO to have an attitude somewhat like that. But I want you to remember what Zuckerberg said, how he said it, not the part where he was buffering, but those conciliatory, empathetic words. And now listen to this answer from another question. There's no audio of it. But the question was, how should we as Facebook employees talk to people who question us? And he said, I think some of the most devastating critiques is not around substance in terms of what the companies do. It's around a motive. So either we don't care because we just care about making money because we're a business. or We don't care about certain issues because we're biased and to not care about them. And I think it's tough to break down these perceptions and build trust until you get to a place where people know that you have their best interests at heart. So that's one thing that you all will be well-suited to do as ambassadors if you choose to be, having spent time here, as I think you know the heart of this place at this point. And I just find that sitting down and talking to people and having them know that you care about the problems and acknowledge that there are issues and that you're working through them, I think that makes a big difference. All right. Perhaps, depending on where you sit, your predilections, you're tempted to hear those words and just dismiss them or doubt his intention or write it off as uh, just self-interest. There's some of it going there. I'm not. I'm not particularly cynical. I think he really means this. And in a way, 
that is even worse. If one of our biggest and most culture-shaping companies were just lying about what they did, then we could expose the lie. We've done that in some cases with Facebook activities. If they were cheating, we could rein them in. We could point to the deception. He's just a nice young man who wants what's best for the world. And I'll even say for the sake of argument, maybe there's no one more pure of spirit or intent imaginable. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. This is exactly why you have regulation, because one person with so much power is wrong. Full stop. It's all you need to know. You need checks and balances and control. This is why we set up our government like we did, not because we didn't think that it wouldn't be staffed by good men. Yes, men at the time, but because we know that even good men need checks and balances and controls. Zuckerberg being such a sweet, family-minded model of inclusivity, it's in fact the greatest advertisement of all for regulation. The old argument, trust us, we're good people, we'll do good. It is laid bare by the Facebook example. This has nothing to do with your heart, it has everything to do with your reach. Now let us try to rein this guy in and connect the people to their government which exists to protect us. On the show today, I spiel about a family making $350,000 a year and still can barely make ends meet. Oh, the pitchforks came out for them. But if you're so strapped, why, why are you guys spending all that money on pitchforks, huh? But first, Martha Minow. She is a wise person. She is a scholar. She is a kind woman. She is a former dean of the Harvard Law School. She has done thinking about an extremely important idea, the concept of forgiveness, forgiveness under the law, forgiveness in society. And here she is to talk about her book, When Should Law Forgive? here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. 
Forgiveness, it's a virtue, but it's not that simple. The new book, When Should Law Forgive, asks that question and answers it, or at least it gives a number of answers. It is written by taking strands of the humanities and strands of history and comparative politics. It is written expertly, of course it is, by Martha Minow, who is the former dean of the Harvard Law School, and her new title is the 300th anniversary university professor there at Harvard. Congratulations on that. The Thank you very much. Not a lot of merit. Like there's the fourth Earl of, <laughs> of uh, Wessex, but Americans don't usually have numbers in their titles. So congratulations. Thank you. What, what drove you to question the idea of forgiveness? Is it that it's so much in the air as we think about our incarceration and over-incarceration problem in the United States? That's certainly a factor, though I've been working on the book for about uh, 10 years. and you said 100 years. Yeah, 100 years, exa- 300 history, years, yes. right, exactly. I, I do believe that we are living in an age characterized by resentment and grievances in this country and around the world, and often warranted, justified resentments and grievances. And the criminal justice system is one example where there's enormous basis to be critical of the system. Uh, But there are also communities that are dealing with serious crime. And so there's grievance on both sides. I don't think, and I know from reading the book and talking to you a little, that you don't think that there is a right and wrong way based on the continuum of punitiveness. There are some instances, some crimes, some circumstances which do call for harsh sentencing and some that do not. And yet I see our society as having, generally speaking, swung along a pendulum when we were punitive. And then there was a long period of time, maybe my younger listeners don't realize this, when very serious crimes would get very short jail terms. And often if you read about serial murderers, they were in jail for four years on a horrific crime and they came out and murdered again. So now we've swung the pendulum perhaps the other way in terms of popular opinion, but not in terms of the actual law. Do you see it like a pendulum or are you trying to get out of that way of thinking of it? I think that's a fair way to describe it. And while we shouldn't always just copy what other countries do, we are so out of whack mm-hmm. with every other country in the world, even when it comes to violent crime. And when it comes to nonviolent crime, there's no place on the planet it, that jails so many people, incarcerates so many people for nonviolent crime. Yeah. Most of the arguments for forgiveness, either explicitly or implicitly, have the message, it's good for the person doing the forgiveness. But that's not the be-all, end-all of why we should forgive, is it? Well, I think there's certainly psychological evidence that it's helpful, medical evidence that it's helpful for the one who forgives, who lets go of resentment. What I decided to do, though, is to ask at a systemic level, could the system be more forgiving? And in the sense of not failing to blame, not failing to punish, but once having found fault, then deciding, okay, we're going to be forward looking. And what I found was all over the legal system. There are mechanisms for forgiveness. We don't have a jurisprudence, a theory about when to use it, however. Mm -hmm. It's treated as off on the side, whether it's pardons by presidents and governors or it's exonerations and expungements, which now really there are projects to try to take advantage of the fact the law allows for people to have their records put aside. But it's hard work. It's not easily done. So the book has, what, about five chapters? And 
I, I take it as going from the quote unquote easy cases to the most difficult cases. So your first chapter is about child soldiers. And yeah, they do commit, not yeah, but they absolutely commit, often commit war atrocities and war crimes or just war. But they, what, what agency did they have in it? How were they able to reject that? Chapter one. Chapter two is about national debt, individual debt. And there it's a little bit of an easier case because I think the economics show that it's in the interest, no pun intended, of the person who holds the debt to forgive. So a little bit easier case. But as we go on and on, we get to the harder cases. So Larry Nasser, And there's a moment where the victims had their day in court and it was this rousing moment and it was an empowering moment. And so how do you take that where where what was uh, being done was finally holding a person who perpetrated horrible misdeeds with a powerful institution behind him. How do you take that and start talking about, okay, now let's think about forgiving this person? Well, thanks for describing the the progress across the book, because I did think about it somewhat the way that you have described, but I also thought about it again, trying to move from the individual to the systemic. And what interests me in part is to see that bankruptcy as a procedure is a systemic offering that the law gives to actually acknowledge that there are concentric circles of responsibility when an individual or a company uh, is no longer able to pay its debts. There's a systemic response. We don't have systemic responses even when we have systemic failures. And sexual assault is absolutely one of those examples. Rather than thinking about it as individual bad actors, which of course there are, but there are also people surrounding them that enable them or look the other way. And we haven't come up with a mechanism to deal with that larger systemic problem. I'm glad that the judge allowed the victims in that case to speak. It's really kind of an unusual circumstance to have that forum of the court. But when it comes to Me Too and sexual assault, I think the bigger problem, and I talk about this some in the book, is that we don't have a lot of people acknowledging that what was wrong was done. We're still struggling for the norm there. So forgiveness, it's a little bit too soon to be talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the reaction to a form of justice that's maybe overly punitive or underpunitive, but justice has to happen first. Exactly. Absent the justice, you can't even start talking about forgiveness. Precisely. And forgiveness is not even the right category if people actually have not acknowledged that they've done wrong and they're not actually held by by the society or others around them for having done a wrong. Forgiveness is only relevant when there has been a wrong. So let's talk about another big form of forgiveness that you write about, which is the forgiveness conferred by presidents. Or it goes back to kings. What is you get into Alexander Hamilton and deciding on who should have the power to forgive? It is one of the parts of the Constitution that is not that different from the divine right of kings. Is there a justification for it, uh, a moral and ethical justification of how we have the pardon power uh, written into the Constitution and wielded by a president? Well, it is quite a remarkable element. And as you say, borrowed from royalty, it does in our Constitution have a restriction when it comes to impeachment. 
president's uh, a power to forgive lim- is limited there. Notice the text doesn't say anything about impeachment of oneself or impeachment of others. And, and, and it's interesting because it has been defended, this pardon power for the president of the United States, as one of the checks on the judiciary, if there's a punitive judiciary. So George Washington actually used the pardon power for the Whiskey Rebellion, yeah. uh, which was a way to kind of set the balance uh, with peace and uh, domestic tranquility being in the balance in a way that the judges might not have had in mind. I, I didn't know till I did the research for this book that other countries have resisted perpetuating the solo control of the executive pardon power by either introducing judicial review or a panel, a group of people. And I'm, I'm actually very intrigued with that and think that we really want to have checks and balances. We shouldn't let the power be in the hands of one person. Maybe this is one of those areas where we get into the tension between a law and a norm. The norm was that it went through a council within the Justice Department. I guess the president could overrule. I don't know if the council looked at Mark Rich and Bill Clinton, but... Absolutely. President Trump has done away with that. So should we encode it in law? It would be hard to. It would have to be a constitutional amendment. I think it's one of the many, many norms that have been thrown aside for no good reason, and it has made us worse as well, a country. a good reason for the man wielding it currently. You know, J- yeah. Trump gets a benefit from pardoning Sheriff Arpaio, who you wrote about. But also, if you look at his other pardons or his supposed or proposed pardons, the Oregon militiamen, that soldier who was quasi-exonerated from killing a captive. You can't make the case that there's a direct correlation to Trump's pockets, but they all have an electoral benefit. They're all thrilling to his base, and that alone should give us pause about this divine right of King's pardon power that we've conferred upon the presidency. Not to mention his hints, not so subtle hints, that he could offer a pardon to someone who disobeys the law on his behalf. Right. And that quid pro quo is getting much closer to direct corruption, not just electoral interest. Right. So the signaling power, and you write about this, he pardons Arpaio, but what does it do besides reward someone who campaigned for him? It tells everyone, I've got your back. And if I'm willing to go to the wall with the sheriff who, it wasn't just he committed heinous crimes, he committed crimes that were interwoven with the rule of law. Precisely. I do believe that the worst example of many terrible examples of pardons uh, with this uh, current president, but in in recent history, has the pardon of Sheriff Arpaio. And it is the case that he not only brazenly and brutally violated the civil rights of many, many people cruelly, but he also then disobeyed the court orders that said to him that he was violating the rights of others. And that contempt citation is what President Trump forgave. Now, it allows Arpaio the chance to now run for office again, which I suppose he could do even if he had the conviction in place. But it is, I think, a direct assault on the underlying laws and even more on the judicial system. When you look at other countries, do you ever find any where they have very good and robust systems of forgiveness, but 
overly punitive or really dysfunctional systems of incarceration and punishment. I would guess that it would kind of go hand in hand. Either you get it right, like a Nordic country, or you get it wrong, like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to pick on any uh, former Soviet state. (laughs) But you know what I mean. (laughs) I I do. I mean, I do think that we are sui generis. We are exceptional in in having the the most punitive kind of criminal system, and yet also unusual in how forgiving we are when it comes to debt. We are unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We and, innovated. And we yeah. innovated that, and many people actually have done studies to sh- suggest that the level of innovation and entrepreneurship in the United States is directly tied to the possibility of uh, declaring bankruptcy. And, you know, I think it's uh, kind of common knowledge that certain v- venture capitalists won't even fund people who haven't failed once before. The mm-hmm. risk-taking is encouraged. And so we, ca- we have our own mixed message that we could learn from here. When Should Law Forgive? Martha Minow is the author. She's former dean of the Harvard Law School. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. And now the spiel. A general rule of home buying is that a home should be between two and two and a half times income. There are other ways to calculate how much home you can afford. A lot of it depends on how much money you put down. How much money you put down depends on how much money you save, which depends on how much money you make. But let's just do this. Let's take a three-bedroom home in New York City. Not a big home. In fact, I'll cite one that's 1,000 square feet smaller than the average size home being built in America today. So let us also put forward that this home is 45 minutes from Midtown, and that the local school is quite below average. And by the way, average in city schools is below average compared to suburban or private schools. And let's also say, given all that, the price of the home is, are you ready? $1.5 million. $1.5 million. Not a home in Midtown. It's in Brooklyn. It isn't in Brooklyn Heights, which is the fanciest part of Brooklyn where Matt Damon bought the borough's most expensive condo. It is, in fact, in this neighborhood. From the heart of Bed-Stuy, you're listening to We Love Radio. Doing the yin and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing, the flippity flop. I have today's forecast for you. Hot! The color for today is black. That's right, black, so you can absorb some of these rays and save that heat for winter. So you want to get on out there, wear that black, and be involved. Crime has come down in Bed-Stuy a lot since 1989, the summer when Spike Lee set Do the Right Thing, but Bed-Stuy still has a high crime rate by city standards. In fact, the 79th precinct had more murders in the first few months of this year than any other New York City precinct. So let's get to the question. Let's get to the question of price. We know it's $1.5 million, but the question is, how much should you earn to buy this nice but small house in this nice but could be safer neighborhood with an elementary school that most parents would be quite less than thrilled to send their kids to? How much should you earn? The answer by that two to two and a half rubric is over half a million dollars. Now, in San Francisco, the median home would require a minimum salary of $343,420. And it was with this figure in mind that the blogger, Sam Dogan, who blogs at Financial Samurai, worked up a budget for a family that earned $350,000, who lived in a home that was a little more expensive than the median price of a home in San Francisco. And this guy, Sam Dogan, showed via a ledger 
that uh, he presented that the family was saving a nice amount, not an excessive amount, 10% of 401k and owned a car, one car, and went out once a week for date night. And he showed that once all these expenses were tallied, the $350,000 earning family had no extra savings by the end of the year. The original article went up on CNBC under the title, it now costs $350,000 a year to live a middle-class lifestyle in a big city. Here's a sad breakdown of why. I don't know, just a realistic breakdown of why. If there's anything sad, it's home prices. I don't know if sad's the right word. Kind of shocking and with an explanation of a government that isn't doing the right things. Anyway, that's my opinion. Let's get to the second place where Sam Dogan's article was, I guess, repurposed. It was Market Watch, and Market Watch took that budget and ran with this headline, this budget shows how a $350,000 salary barely qualifies as middle class. Now, at this point, the readers who were encountering this story were still holding it together. Everything was going okay. But the MarketWatch Twitter feed posted the article under the tag, $350,000 dot dot dot, and still struggling. And with that, the internet lost its mind. Who is spending $70 a day on food? This is why we hate y'all, writes Uppity Negress. Twitter was indignant. $70 for food per day? $400 for clothes per month? These people aren't struggling. To claim they are is an utter slap in the face of everyone who is. It was also seething. I haven't bought new clothes in five years. I hate these people so much. That was at Abortu. And I have to say, it's not just at Abortu's garments that are threadbare. So is his arguments. The first thing we need to note is that there is no actual family who is chronicled in this budget. Sam Dogan constructed the ledger and I emailed him and he emailed me back and he explained, yes, I constructed the ledger, quote, as an example budget of a dual income household with two kids. He said it was, quote, modeled after an aspirational budget that I would consider having if I had two kids and stayed in San Francisco, where I've lived since 2001. Dogan also added that his main goal is to encourage people to stay on top of their finances and achieve financial freedom sooner rather than later. Going on, I want folks to question the never-ending desire for money and status as well. And the best way to get people to review their budget, save more aggressively, and invest more prudently, and think about their purpose is to start a discussion. Well, if discussion, he meant fusillade of fury, he got it. To take some of the comments, not just on the web, but on Slate's internal Slack channel, quote, their anxiety is much less legitimate than other people's anxiety. Quote, nothing wrong with shaming people who aren't self-aware enough to realize how fortunate they are. And quote, about the clothing line in the budget, Old Navy, not Gucci on the budget is so disgusting. I asked Dogen why he wrote Old Navy, not Gucci. And he said, oh, I enjoyed some people seeing the humor in the budget when I wrote Toyota Highlander, not Range Rover and Old Navy, not Gucci. It was my way not only clarifying the budget, but making fun of U.S. consumerism. I don't know. Some people miss the subtlety there. At CDoc911, Old Navy, not Gucci, LMAO. Moral of this pathetic story, don't carry a million-dollar mortgage in a high-tax neighborhood. You clearly can't afford a second car. Bitch, please. At Nonfiction8879, Old Navy, not Gucci? Go fuck yourself. This is the worst. And finally... 
They said buy Old Navy, not Gucci, and Toyota Highlander instead of Range Rover. This is a treasure trove of rich people bullshit. So why choose to make fun of cognitive disability? That was written by at Angry Astrid. I have noticed a lot of angry comments on Twitter come from people who are telling you in their names or their tags that they are angry. I think it would be an interesting study to find out if they are more angry than usual. Maybe we could use it as a filtering strategy. The discourse having occurred over Twitter didn't surprise me by the outrage and the hate. I was a little surprised with the part of the family's expenditure that was seen as most outrageous. The food budget, $70 per day for a family of four. This works out to less than $6 a meal per person. One actual nutrition expert blamed caviar sandwiches. Stephen Gainette, author of The Hungry Brain, wrote, how does one spend $70 a day on food? Are they eating caviar sandwiches for lunch? That could be cut down by 75%. All right, you cut it down by 75%. They're spending $1.45 a day. When I asked Stephen Gainette via Twitter how he could feed a family with each meal costing $1.45 a day. He said he, in fact, feeds his own family of three on a budget of two to $300 a month. But to be fair, he grows his own food. Sure, if you're a gentleman farmer, paying yourself a wage of $0 for your labor, I guess it's cheaper. I personally like to slaughter stray goats who are wandering about the neighborhood for my stew. I guess that counts too. Also, the $1.45 a day that you would be spending would be $130 a month. So it's still about half of what you say you spend on your family a month, doctor. To me, the outrage was as predictable as anything in our society. Americans are pretty impulsive, immature, ignorant, and angry when it comes to the spending habits of people in circumstances other than their own. I have seen this phenomenon so often. There is a strike, a union strike. And in the third paragraph of the story, or 45 seconds in, They reveal what the average worker in that union makes. And inevitably, the reaction of the person hearing that is, if they make more money than the union worker, oh, they should get a raise. And if they make less money than the union worker, the reaction is, oh, must be pretty nice. And you get summers off slash free uniform from the LIRR. Now, it's weird because we have, or at least some of us have, learned a little bit of a lesson about not dictating to people poorer than ourselves what they should spend on, right? Remember a few months ago when Chase advised some of its followers to engage in parsimony? Uh, This was their tweet. You, why is my balance so low? Bank account, make coffee at home. Bank account, eat food that's already in the fridge. Bank account, you don't need a cab. It's only three blocks. You, I guess I'll never know bank account. Seriously? The tweet was deleted because of scads of criticism, including Elizabeth Warren, who evoked the bailout during the financial crisis to admonish the bank advising its customers to drink coffee at home. Poor shaming is the phrase which means you can't judge a family with an income below a certain level. There is obviously no version of rich shaming. The gleeful assumption was that the expenses of this imaginary family needed to be illegitimate needed to be foolishly incurred. Oh, also, the word struggling in the Market Watch tweet, that was extremely triggering. That was some Kosovo content farm level triggering right there. So, what is the best reaction, if you will glean from my sentiment that the best reaction isn't being unbelievably furious at a fake family whose budget you read? I would suggest that to angrily engage in a line item vetting of rich people's expenses 
is more similar to, not less similar to, what we agree is the unhelpful urge to nitpick each slice of avocado toast that a millennial ingests. It's not a punching up, punching down dynamic. It's an ignorantly judging the life circumstances of those in different situations than you dynamic. I remember when I was in my 20s and I wondered why my bosses in their 40s were so distraught about mortgages and colleges and maximizing income. I didn't hate them. I didn't have a yearning to scold them, though I have to say this was pre-internet and so I had yet to be conditioned by the outrage machine. But I, I, I do like to think that if someone put a budget together and said, yeah, this is what a person earning much more than you earn, this is what they spend money on, I would look at it with interest, not automatic knee-jerk condemnation. But of course, I'd be pretty skeptical. And I might say something like, oh, Toyota Highlander? What, Suzuki Sidekick wasn't available? There are savings in that imaginary budget, not caviar sandwich level savings, but savings to be found. What's more valuable about this entire exercise is to learn a lesson about rage, assumptions, manipulation, and judgment. If the word pushing out the story wasn't struggle, if the story were framed as, a $350,000 earning family is happy and thankful to be saving for college and to have a nice house and to be living not extravagantly. Still, they have no money left over. There wouldn't be outrage. Of course, there'd be no traffic. Then again, there's no family. Like I said, this is all imaginary budget. A lot of people recommended that these people just leave the city. That's very tempting. But that's like saying the problem of tiger attacks in Maharashtra can be solved by not going to Maharashtra. There's still tigers there. Dogen invented the budget to demonstrate how much it costs for an urban family to maintain a middle-class lifestyle. The point cannot be made if we take his imaginary family and move them out of our imaginary city, because it still costs that much to live in the city. Despite every nitpick of the budget, oh, why'd you take two destination vacations, or what they used to be called vacations. Ooh, who told you to buy rather than rent? Ooh, $30,000 a year in a 401k? It's nice to have money. But the premise that he was getting at was that a middle-class lifestyle is increasingly out of reach even for the 98th or 99th percent. A proper rebuttal is it's irresponsible for them to want things that are hallmarks of the middle-class lifestyle, non-indulgent things at that chastising the fake family that if it's so expensive they shouldn't live there doesn't really prove any point yes it's so expensive i know we know sam dogan knows that is the point he's making the solutions on a policy level are pretty close to the general solutions of affordable housing everywhere the government should subsidize and encourage more housing for all families and supplement what building there is and also invest in usable transportation also most economists will tell you rent regulation are long-term bad, but I'm sure everyone's mad enough with me already. And also, that only gets to a small fraction of the problem. What I think we should all do is, of course, vote for good housing policies and good transportation policies and a fairer tax code. But most importantly, not fall into the trap of hating your fellow citizen or the imaginary versions thereof, who make seven times the median income. Think of it this way. A family making $350,000 earns just about six times the median salary of the median American household. But an American household makes six times the median household income of the world's household income. So this means somewhere in Kazakhstan or Malaysia, 
There's your average citizen there who might be raging at the fact that you and your family, who is mad at the $350,000 family, that you're spending the outrageous sum of, I don't know, $65 a month on clothing or more than $7 on, quote, personal care products, whatever they are. Our outrage, manipulated outrage at that, is unempathetic. It adds to the anger in the world, and it really does nothing to achieve a solution. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist, and his family name inspired the cheese grater that was invented by the professor on Gilligan's Island, the Schrader grater. Christina DeJosa, a producer on The Gist, is the familial name for the toaster that was on Gilligan's Island, the DeJosa toaster. The Gist. We happen to be the inspiration for the first guy to ever ask, if it's a three-hour tour, why'd you take all that clothing? Oh, lovey, Howell. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.